0: Well, good morning to you all. I always think the Lord has a sense of humor on some of these things. We have a, a, a long chapter today in, in a sh- very short amount of time. So let's jump right in. Uh, we'll pray. We are going to be in Second Chronicles 26 this morning, dealing with the, lives, uh, the life of one of the longest reigning kings in Judah, second only to Manasseh. And this is the life of Uzziah, who's also known as Azariah, and one of the servants of the Lord. So let's pray this morning and commit our way to the Lord. Father, we're grateful for the time that you've given to us here. We pray that you would cause us to see wonderful things out of your law. Um, We do not have strong enough minds on our own to see anything other than history here. And if we were approaching without the eye of faith and without the recognition that what you've recorded, you've recorded for our spiritual good, then all we would see in front of us is a historical record of the life of a king, and yet there is so much more that you intend for your people. So conform us to truth, because you're conforming us by your spirit to the image of our own Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen. Uh, Let's just jump right in today. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. We'll read the first 15 verses and, Lord willing, get to other verses a little bit later on. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the stead of his father Amaziah. Okay, we'll pause here. We need some background because it's been a while since we saw Amaziah. Amaziah was a good king in Judah, as we saw a year ago. He did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, the majority of his reign, until He went and defeated a bunch of Edomites in the Valley of Salt. The God gave him victory, so far so good. Then he picked up Edom's gods and brought them back to Judah and started worshiping them. And again, a year ago we saw, the stupidity of this. The gods of Edom couldn't even rescue their own people. Why do you think that they're going to do you any good? And the very God that delivered Edom into your hand, you're now pushing to the side in order to worship Edom's gods. And the Scriptures tell us that from the time that he abandoned the Lord his God, people began making a conspiracy against him. And the conspiracy took a number of years to develop to full fruition, but eventually the leaders of Judah sent after him, and he knew he was being harried, he knew he was being threatened, but they sent after him, he fled to a a, far, a distant city, they sent after him there, and they assassinated him. And the life of Amaziah, which went from this high point, it now crashed down into a low point, and it's now, at this time, all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. Ever wonder why the Lord records All the details like that. We actually have some interesting evidence. His father was 54 when he was assassinated. Uzziah is 16. Meaning Uzziah was born when his father was... 54 minus 16. 38. There we go. 38 years old. Um... Do you know when kings tended to have their first children in the ancient world? Somewhere between 15 and 18 years old. He already would have been married off and having children. So for Uzziah to have been born when his father was 38 years old makes it incredibly probable that Uzziah was nowhere near the first, second, third, maybe even fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth son of his father. Okay, it, it, We don't know for sure, but we do know that the rulers of Judah turned against his father when his father abandoned the Lord and conspiracies are circulating and they're trying to find a way to get rid of the king and they do not like the previous king. And it says here, and all the people of Judah took took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. Um, this is what we call the deep state. It is. It operates all across human history, the deep state, which is actually making and breaking the kings who are reigning. And they don't want Uzziah's older brothers who are of sufficient age, with sufficient influence from their father Possibly to turn around and then execute the people who assassinated the father. So they take a 16-year-old and made him, make him king. Why? Well, he's a little more pliable. He'll do what we say. He'll be under our thumb at least for a number of years. And by that time, we will have accomplished our purposes. Okay. So there's a lot embedded even in background verses like this. Verse 2, he built Eloth and restored it to Judah. After the king slept with his fathers that's his his father had died. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbeal and the, against the Muonites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem, at the corner gate, at the valley gate, at the angle, and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds both in the Shephelah and in the plain. He had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war and divisions according to the numbers and the muster made by Jael the secretary, and Masaiah, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of fathers' households of mighty men of valor was 2,600. So those are his ruling. Those are his officers, basically. Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for the army Shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones, and his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. This is the word of the Lord, and it has a great value for us this morning. Every year... Several dozen rock climbers worldwide fall to their deaths attempting, typically free climbing, but attempting things that are a little beyond their reach. And all it takes is for one grip to fail, one foot to slip, one rock face to be wet on a day or in the process of the climb, you reach a higher altitude and water has condensed on the rock face and you were expecting it to be dry by that point And all of the glory and all of the capacity and all of the strength and all of the renown of the rock climbers brought to nothing very quickly and abruptly. I saw this in microcosm. I've been rock climbing a few times indoors and on uh, rocks that were artificial like this before. And it's a great experience. It will leave you incredibly sore afterward. Um, But while I was climbing with ropes and and hooking in properly and um, using harnesses and things like that with a belay, some other individuals will come in and they'll run the complex routes all over. They look like spiders crawling all across the face of the rock. They're just incredibly skillful. And it's not super high. Uh, the building that I was operating in only went up to about 25, maybe 30 feet high at the, at the highest indoors. And they have really thick mats on the floor so a person's not going to be injured. And you have to sign all the waivers. But I was watching one of these spiders <laughs> in the process of his skill crawling across a face. And he was, he was going up and down and across and just practicing things back and forth. And finally, he got to one of these instances where he actually was going to have to jump out away from the wall, up at the same time, reach around a ledge that was overhanging, and grab something on top. And he missed. And he fell. He was prepared for it, landed on mats. He was fine because it was indoors. But, you know, other guys were congratulating him on his skill and other things like that. And yet, in that one moment, the skill came to nothing The Bible talks about this not in in terms that we later would come to call hubris, but it does talk about it in terms of pride. And I looked up a definition of hubris in, in an encyclopedia, and it said it's an overweening presumption that leads a person to disregard divinely fixed limits on human action in an ordered cosmos. Interesting that even secular sources would integrate things like a divinely ordained limit in an ordered cosmos a structured and ordered world that operates these ways we think we're invincible when we're not and problems arise well this happened with our king in this text and it did so in a specific way he ignored the fact that God is the giver of all success that God had granted, that God had given, that God had built him, that God had made him strong. And when he forgot God in that particular way, pride arose in his heart that led to unfaithfulness. Because as soon as we forget that God is the giver of all success, that God is the giver literally of every single good thing we possess, we start allocating just a little bit too. Well, it came about because I was sophisticated and I was smart and I was gifted and I made shrewd investments and I did something at the company in a particular way that got me the promotion. Pride begins to creep into our ruin as well. Since God is the giver of all success, we ought to renounce pride. In fact, we ought to be on the hunt for pride in our lives so that As soon as it starts taking root anywhere, we're so keen to recognize God as the author of everything that's good that pride crops up and we look at it and we recognize it as the noxious weed that it is and we root it out, lest we ourselves become unfaithful as well. So, what does the passage tell us? At very least, with our limited time today, we get an overview. That's providential as well, uh, in case we don't get to everything. But I chose to write down an entire list throughout the text of what God has given to Uzziah and has given to us as well. God gives every position that we hold, every job that we will ever have, every office. God is the author of it all. We would have nothing apart from him. God gives us every victory that we experience in life. Now, we don't get to lead armies, most of us, right? So I don't get to go out and march against the Philistines or some other historically and culturally uh, uh, well-armed enemy of our country or of our smaller subset of society. But God does give us victories in life, and every single one of them is coming from his hand. God gives us all the property that we own. It stems from his hand. We have nothing apart from him. He gives us the power that we possess to use our position and victories and property in a good way. God gives limits on our responsibility. And that's a good thing as well. Because if our lives were so open-ended that we had to feel ourselves burdened and tasked to do everything. Maybe you do sometimes in business You've been so successful. You've been a good manager using the gifts that God has given in an appropriate way. And that usually results in not necessarily promotion. Sometimes the promotion goes to somebody else, but at least results in more work for you, right? Because they look out and say, he is really successful. Put it in his hands. He's a great manager. Well, the Lord will place limits on our responsibility as well, lest we be overburdened. He gives us all the health that we enjoy. Even our reversals come from his hand, but our health comes from his hand. Even the opportunity to be here today comes from his hand. And every social benefit that we enjoy as well. Yet, I want to demonstrate really quickly that our text and our theme is true. Because the theme is that God is giving all these. and, And really, even though I listed that and I affirm that God is the author and giver of all those, does the text really say that? Glad you asked. Verse 5, God made him prosper. Verse 7, God helped him. Verse 15, his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped. What what voice is that? Passive. Passive. But we've covered this before frequently in Scripture and particularly embedded within a passage where we have already affirmed that God is the author of something, that God is at work, that God is on the move. And then we use a passive later on like this. He was marvelously helped. Who's doing the helping? This is God. It's another affirmation of the same. And then all the way down in verse 20, which we have not read yet, but the turning point in his life the Lord struck him. The point at which he is lifted up with pride, the Lord struck him. And everything that he values is taken away very, very quickly. So we have evident proof. God is the author of all that is good in his life and in ours as well. So let's jump into the analysis of these specifically. God gives us every position that we hold. Specifically, he's arranging even our place in the world And I'd cover the fact already that his father died at 54 and the fact that Uzziah apparently is not among the first of Amaziah's children. And yet the Lord has so arranged circumstances, even in the meeting out of judgment against Uzziah's father, so that other people are passed over and Uzziah himself is made king. Now, if you're the sixth or seventh king, or sorry, uh, son Of the king, do you have any expectation of rule? No, in fact, you're you're kind of sitting there a little bit nervous because when your older brother takes the kingship, what might he be inclined to do? Kill you so that there are no other claimants to the throne. So that there's nobody kind of conniving behind his back. Backstabbing, trying to remove him so that they might have that position. So he does not have aspiration. He has probably no chance of gaining the throne until God at work intervenes, arranges for this circumstance to unfold. God grants him exactly his position. God also arranges our heritage. Did his father matter? Well, yeah, without being from the line of David, Uzziah has no chance of reigning at all. Did his mother matter? Yes, without her, he wouldn't have other spiritual influences and other good influences on his life that apparently made him, by the time he was 16 years old, into a man who feared the Lord. He didn't get that from his father. And his father's decade or so of idolatry at the end of the life, that is, most of Uzziah's growing up years, he saw an idolatrous father. And all the good of his earlier years had passed away. And God arranges our spiritual influences. In verse 5, Zechariah guided him in righteousness. Uh, We don't know exactly who that Zechariah is. Um, His name is just dropped here. He's not the prophet Zechariah who wrote the biblical book. Because that prophet is a post-exilic prophet. So you're going to have the, the Babylonian captivity. A few more kings in Judah. The Babylonian captivity of 70 years. And then the people return from the Babylonian captivity. Zechariah is going to write in this era over here. We assume that he was probably a priest, but he could have just been another nobleman in, in Judah who was a righteous person. But the text doesn't say, and even 2 Kings doesn't help us because it doesn't comment on him at all. But at very least, we know that God set this man, Uzziah, under spiritual influences. Look back at your life. Would you be here without the influences that God had set you under? I'm third-generation believer. My grandpa believed his... His parents did not, as far as we know. But My grandpa believed in the Lord and yet was not super well-informed. Some of the decisions he made throughout life just show the the life of a person who's trying to do what's right, but doesn't have a fully-orbed, fully-developed theology that's right in every point. So my father grew up in the United Methodist Church. Like, well, that's not exactly the best of influences, is it? And yet, the particular United Methodist Church in which he grew up had a really, really old pastor who was conservative and would even comment things from the pulpit along the lines basically of, well, you know... They send us this information, and this is what I'm supposed to be passing on. But the scriptures say, and he'd point people to the scriptures. And then after college, he moved and had a job in Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, he came under the ministry of a pastor who was as clear and biblical and expositional and exegetical all those fancy words that all mean good things, right? As possible. And that's where my dad learned, really, to develop and expound the Scriptures. And then he's merely a a lawyer, and a, a day happens, and he's wondering if law is what he's supposed to even be in. So he's wandering around in the Indiana Capitol courthouse, praying and praying, Lord, am I even supposed to be doing this anymore? And he walks up to a Bible. Yeah, there were Bibles in the courthouse at that time, a big, massive Bible on a lectern and the rotunda or something like that. And he walked up, he's like, God, I've got to have guidance. This is not the recommended way. But he put his hand down on the, the text, and it says, desiring to be teachers of the law, not knowing whereof they affirm. <laughs> and it's a negative comment on lawyers in the Bible. And he's like, all right, I, good enough of an expositor to know. That's not why God put it in there. But I have no other means of knowing at this point where I'm supposed to go in life. So the Lord turned him aside from law. And instead, he, under the leadership of his pastor at that time, started a school, a small school in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, And there he also taught Sunday school in the church where he happened to be when a certain dean of the school of religion from Bob Judge University would come up to recruit at that school and as a good friend of the pastor of the church and would sit in my dad's Sunday school class year after year after year when he's on recruiting trips, he'd sit in my dad's Sunday school class and finally one year he says, hey, I'd really like you to come teach Bible at Bob Jones University. My dad says, Bible? know. I'm like, my degrees are in English and history, education, and then law. Yeah, but your exposition of scripture is why we're asking you to teach Bible. Is he, no, I'm not really interested in doing that. Well, after I think it was three years, he came again another time and the Lord had been moving on my dad's heart so that he came down to South Carolina and taught. And I, Wow. What would I be doing without all of that influence? And I've often thought in terms of even my own attitudes and dispositions and, and, I don't know, pessimistic, critical mindset regarding a lot of things. Would I have even come to know the Lord at all if I hadn't been born into a Christian family with Christian influences and exposure to the gospel early on? I don't know. But I certainly wouldn't be here today and doing what I'm doing So if somebody ever says, oh, this is a really valuable class, a student walks out saying this was a particularly meaningful class period, say, well, thank the Lord for that, because the reality is God is the giver of gifts and opportunities, none of which I would have possessed if he hadn't laid them out. I didn't deserve it, and yet he gave it anyway. God gives us every victory that we experience. He defeats our adversaries in front of him. And again, you think about this. The Philistines are a perennial, perennial enemy. And for centuries, almost, they have been in ascendancy against Israel. Oh yeah, we know that during David's day and Solomon's day, immediately after him, the, the Philistines were under the thumb of the Judean kings. But once Rehoboam came to power and uh, Egypt broke Judah's power. The Philistines were again in ascendancy, and none of the uh, Judean kings tended to have strength against them, but Uzziah did. And it was strong enough. He didn't just defeat their armies out in the field in open battle. He actually penetrated all the way into Philistia, shattered their defenses, broke open their wall, and you think, well, what's the first enemy that's going to be strong enough to do that to Judah? To come in and shatter Judah's power completely and tear down the wall. That's going to be Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. So Judah has the equivalent power of Babylon against its adversaries in Uzziah's day. That's incredible. And he shatters, look at the list, the power of the Arabians down in the south and the power of the Muonites or the Edomites over in the east and the power of the Ammonites in the uh, northeast and central east. So all of the adversaries around him are falling to him. And the scriptures tell us it's because God helped him against his adversaries. God grants renown in verse 8. So he's expanding his territory Um, westward, southward, down around the Dead Sea, extensive expansion of Judea in the days of Uzziah, and that God next grants him renown. The passage tells us specifically that he was known all the way to the borders of Egypt. His fame spread far. He grew strong because God was with him. Uzziah had the opportunity to build towers. These are not just strong monuments, but fortifications. Instead of having enemies that were constantly attacking him, he was attacking enemies and building far-flung. Because it says they're not only on the walls of Jerusalem that he's building towers, he goes out into the wilderness and builds towers. Like, kind of like the Great Wall of China. He's going way out there to the edges and borders of their territory and building military posts and fortifications against future difficulties. His fame is spreading even to the border of, G- of Egypt. So the powerful Egyptian kings, they are not yet waning. They're not at the, at the height of Egyptian glory That happened several hundred years ago before his time. But Egypt is still strong enough that it is going to vie with um, Assyria for a time for control of the Middle East and then Babylon afterward. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to break the power of Egypt at that time. Next, God gives health. He gives health. He gives health of our property in verse 9 where instead of things being shattered and broken down, Uzziah is building up. You, you guys all know how quickly things run down, right? Have you looked under your house lately if you're on a crawl space? Kind of like, how does that even happen? And I have the crawl space vents mo- mostly shut off, and you'd think that this you know, almost sealed area underneath the house ought to be somewhat clean, particularly because they laid plastic under our house sometime way before we bought it. And yet somehow on top of the plastic are layers of, layers of dirt. And it's filthy. We live in a log cabin. Log cabins are, are spider magnets. They love the, the rippling of the logs and the density, the wood. It's just like building out in the forest. So you can go out, you can sweep down. You know, this afternoon, I'll sweep down spider webs from our back entry for small group tonight. And by the time small group gets there, another spider will have built something. Like it just, just like that. Things break down. Our air conditioning breaks down. Our stoves break down. Logs rot. Water gets in through the roof line. All of you can narrate these stories, right? And then we've got to call Dave. Dave, come help me because I don't know how to rebuild. With this. this is a big problem that I've got going on. It's breaking down. If you're constantly in the process of fixing things that are breaking down, you don't have time to make your house better. And yet we know from the Bible that the Lord will sometimes enter into human history and actually almost put his hands around his people and protect them from things breaking down. What's the classic example of that in God's word? There is a long period in which God interdicted the second law of thermodynamics for his people. Do you know what it was? The wilderness wanderings. What does the Bible explicitly say about the wilderness wanderings? Forty years worth of wandering in the wilderness, but their shoes didn't wear out. And we're not talking about people who are sitting around in the tents eating bonbons, right? Dates. That's the ancient world's bonbons, right? Dates and honey. Um, They're walking back and forth, long journeys throughout the wilderness. Now you tell me, even with modern equipment, that's, that's almost the equivalent of car tires on the bottom of our feet, right? Designed for sidewalks and things like that. How long do your shoes last when you're actually wearing them with some frequency? How long? If I can get two... Two years out of a pair of shoes on campus at Bob Jones University, walking around on those sidewalks. If I get two years out of a pair of shoes, I feel I'm doing pretty well. Forty? Not possible. Impossible. Beyond the realm of possibility. Can I say it any other ways? It doesn't happen. Oh, yes, it did. Clothing? I'm wearing a new suit today. Do you like it? My wife just found it, Labor Day sale. She got online and it's supposed to be like $300 and she found it for $120. She's like, You need a new suit because certain things are happening kind of in your area amidships that demand new suitage. And I'm like, Oh, thanks. Okay. Well, that's good. She's spending our money very well, wisely, right? But how long does a new suit last? One of my favorite suits that I ever owned. I just I kept it for special occasions—a nice charcoal uh, gray suit with a little pinstripe in it. I pull out one day for a wedding, and there's a hole in the shoulder. I'm like, a hole in the shoulder? It's not like I wear this out, you know, when I'm weed eating or something like that. There's a hole in the shoulder. Moths. It was a wool coat, and the moths had eaten little pebbles right in the. Sh- Toss that away. You know, you spent hundreds of dollars on something and a little tiny bug comes along and lies almost minuscule little eggs on it and these little tiny caterpillars you can hardly even see eat holes in your clothing. How long is clothing going to last in the ancient world? Well, 40 years, according to... The How is Uzziah able to build and build and build and build as as he's doing? Because the Lord is allowing him to do so in a way that even his property is experiencing an unexpected health. And a really important point, by the way. He gives us the extent of our property. He loved the soil. He loved the soil. So so what? Can I draw a, a little point to your attention? Uzziah is more like Solomon than any of the other kings of Israel or Judah. Think of what we've listed already. Military victory, alliances, bringing other people under tribute, building everywhere, raising things in the soil. This man has diverse interests and incredible managerial skill, and yet God has gifted this to him so that Judah expands in his days. God gives the growth of power. And this is one I wanna, I'm just gonna close with this one because I, I think we, we've hit enough. We're not gonna get to his pride. That's terrible. But, but think along these lines, disease. Back to where we are today, you know, we we're, we're all went through COVID together. It's a very terrible time in the world. It actually wasn't. And I can say that as somebody who had long COVID for two years, I still have some effects of it, but it's two years where I was in pronounced weakness, difficulty walking, major cognitive impairment, and things like that. So I, I experienced some of the ravages of that disease, but here's the reality. For the last several hundred years prior to the 20th century, Europe lost about 400,000 people per year to smallpox. Worldwide, millions died every year to one disease, smallpox. Add malaria to that, which claims millions of lives. Add simple things like the flu to that. Spanish flu alone claimed millions of lives. Add to that bubonic plague, add to that the the fact that if an animal bit you, there's no cure. You're going to die, a rabid animal. Disease has savaged humanity prior to the really recent modern era, and there's no era in the history of the world like the current era. Today, when we, we hold a little package in our hands and we ooh and ah over it, we actually expect it to live to Adulthood. That is a 20th century phenomenon. Go back into the 1800s and you hold this package in your hand and you have probably about a 75% chance it would die before it reached adulthood. And you had to have lots of children. You would watch them die and die and die and die in succession. And today... We expand and we, we think, not, we, yes, we, we pray. And we ought to pray very intensely about childhood diseases and the ones who are born in our midst prematurely and things like that. But we actually have an expectation they will live. And that is new. Famine, famine is worldwide. It's ubiquitous. The, the articles that I was reading said, there's no nation in the world that we're aware of that doesn't, has not experienced famine in the past. And the one thing that changed the loss of millions of people to starvation, was capitalism. Every other economic system that has been tried in the history of the world leads to starvation and famine, ultimately. But capitalism says, hey, you guys are a good producer of wheat, I'm not so good and I've just had a really hard year, I'll buy your wheat and I'll give you something in exchange that you want. Oh, you had a hard year too of wheat? Well, I'll go over here. We'll buy corn then instead. No corn this year? Okay, fine. We'll go over here and buy rice from Asia. And capitalism has opened up markets in a way that nothing else could solve the famine problem worldwide. And like, we went to the grocery stores in late COVID. I remember all the supply chain difficulties and all the whining we went through when we're like, are you kidding me? I only have 20 different kinds of coffee I can choose from. When are we ever going to get out of this horrible, you know, circumstance? And that's the life that we've lived in. And we have been incredibly ungrateful people. Because God has given and given and given. And we haven't even admitted that it was his hand doing the giving. Every single blessing that we experience right now, today, is from his hand. Every bit of our physical health, financial health, property health, the children that we have, the church that we go to, the community in which we live, the laws under which we live, and even the politicians under which we operate, they may be like the Mexico, or New Mexico governor. Governor who just came out and said basically the Constitution doesn't matter and my oath of office doesn't matter. She specifically said so. It does not matter. I will violate my oath of office when and how I see fit because it is entirely negotiable. See if she lasts. As bad as that is, we don't have an Adolf Hitler or a Paul Pot or a Mao Zedong reigning over us. So we live in relative political stability and political security, even with the wicked rulers that we may have. God has authored so much good. Let's not lift up our hands against him this week. And the lifting up the hand can take the force of outright in-your-face rebellion, but in my heart, it tends to be in gratitude coupled with pride. I stop looking at what I have as, as actually from his hand and I start looking at it as if is this not my fiefdom that I have built by the might of my power and by my wisdom? And I never realized I sound a lot like Nebuchadnezzar whom God opposed. Father, grateful for your word this morning. We're thankful that you have given us time and opportunity to consider this, and we praise you for all the good gifts. We admit again that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from a Father of lights. And there is no variableness in you, and there's no shadow cast that's due to change in you. And so your good gifts in the Old Testament are like your good gifts in the New Testament are like your good gifts in the 21st century. Our eyes are on you as far as our hope and our delight. And we praise you again this morning that you have given and given and given freely, abundantly, repeatedly, emphatically. You give to the most undeserving of humanity. You give to those who know you and to those who don't know you. You give to those who are following after you. You give to those who have never darkened the door of a church and those who are obstinately opposed to you and want to pull you down from your throne. You give and give and give. And so in our hearts today, instead of being lifted up, we praise you and submit once again to your authority and wisdom and goodness. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.